We're gonna, ready to go. We're gonna start off with DACA. DACA, sabotage, white paper. You get the BC Boys song. I got that reference. Last time we mentioned a song, I didn't get it. I think it was Wu Tang Clan. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined by Sarah Cliff. Uh, Ezra's vacation somehow continues. Uh, Lost track knows. of him at this point. We've we're got like a whole new hurricane coming since he, <laughs> he's gone on vacation. It's it's very puzzling. Um, we've got a really uh, a blockbuster weedsy white paper that was sent directly to us by, I guess, some some weeds listeners. No, one of the author. The author yeah, sent it, it to us. Exactly. He I was mean, also a, a listener sure. who knew this was going to be right up our alley. So we're, we're very excited for it. There's also, we never talk about the Affordable Care Act, but uh, there's some it's important updates on there. Darlin and I talked about uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals uh, at, at great length uh, last week. And if you really want to know the ins and outs of, of that program and, and its history, Really recommend you check out that episode. Uh, Deferred Action Podcasting is the uh, is the title. But we got the news um, yesterday that Donald Trump is officially making the call to say that he is ending the program. Uh, he did not address this personally. He instead put his attorney general out there, Jeff Sessions said that the program is unconstitutional in his opinion, that the Justice Department could not defend it in court. And so even though there has not been an actual lawsuit uh, saying that they have to end it, much less a, a loss in court, the mere threat that Texas would sue is enough for Sessions to say, we need to fold this unconstitutional program. There's going to be a six-month sort of delay in which people who already have work permits and, and things like that can keep working and, and living their lives. Uh, but at the end of that time, it's going to be lights out for, for DACA and then things get very murky, uh, where Sessions Sessions is an anti-immigration hardliner. So, like, there was a lot of stuff in his statement. I mean, he's the Attorney General of the United States, so he is the competent official to weigh in on this question of lawsuits, uh, since he theoretically supervises the Solicitor General's office. But he's also a been a senator for decades. And so he just sort of stated his opinion that these DACA recipients are taking jobs from hundreds of thousands of native-born Americans, which carries with it the policy implication that they should all be kicked out. And he said all this stuff about how the American people deserve an immigration policy that puts their interests first. Uh, It's very well known. I mean, Sessions was a ferocious opponent of the DREAM Act when he was a senator, uh, was a ferocious opponent uh, of any kind of immigration reform in 2007, 2013. So, like, his view is we should round all these people up and kick them out of the country as quickly as possible. The administration's point of view seems to be, no, that Congress should do something. Trump is saying, I guess, that there's nothing he can do. His hands are tied and that really Congress should pass some totally unspecified legislative measure that fixes this. But, but all he's of not this engaged with it. is kind of complicated. By last night, you saw President Trump tweeting that he, you know, he says Congress should visit this. The time to act is now. But if they don't, I will revisit it in six months, which seems to run counter to a lot of what we've heard from the administration, that this is an issue that they have framed it very much as an issue they can't revisit, that their hands are tied, that Congress has to act. 
So it was a little curious, both, you know, in terms of how it's been framed and also, you know, as Dara wrote for us this morning, that this isn't very easy to undo once you set it in motion. You know, memos are being written at DHS. We have a one-month period where DACA recipients can apply to have their visas extended if they um, if they have a visa that, that expires within the next six months. So all of this is happening. I, I guess, you know, you could maybe have some kind of workaround in six months, but it, it seems like it'd be quite challenging to undo what has been done over the past 24 hours. And the suggestion from the Trump administration has been that they can't undo it, that they have no sort of recourse, that it's up to Congress. And if Congress doesn't act, that their hands are tied. And it's been kind of interesting. This fight over DACA has reminded me a lot of how the Trump administration deals with a lot of policy issues, which is creating a lot of policy uncertainty. Um, Not necessarily getting rid of a program, not necessarily, you know, saying, yes, we're going to keep running this, but leaving a lot of things in a gray zone. And that changes how people act. Um, It changes how DACA recipients act. It reminded me a lot of this fight we've been having over these cost-sharing reduction subsidies, where the Trump administration is constantly saying, um, you know, we might pay these, we might not pay these, we want to keep our options open. Um, Instead of Jeff Sessions, it's Mick Mulvaney, who's the one, the guy at OMB, who is the one who comes out and, like, says these things every month or so, kind of casting this amount of uncertainty. And, you know, they actually went for it on DACA. They went forward and said, okay, we're going to end the program with CSRs. They're still in this kind of gray zone where we don't know what the administration is going to do. But there seems to be an attraction in the White House towards keeping a lot of these executive actions on the part of the Obama administration, not wiping them off the books immediately, not saying, you know, Obama was president and we're here now and we're going to undo this, but instead holding them in this kind of policy limbo that's actually a pretty difficult place for insurance companies to exist and more personally for for 800,000 DACA recipients to exist. It's much harder when you don't know what rules you're playing by to make plans for the future. And in this case, I mean, it seems, I think to understand what's happening here, you have to remember earlier in the summer when Trump sort of went to Twitter war with Jeff Sessions, right? There was this spell where Trump seemed to be trying to shame Sessions into quitting so that he could then replace Sessions with somebody who would help him shut down the Russia investigation, right? At least that's that's what it looked like was happening. Uh, But Sessions just didn't quit. And you got a lot of supportive statements for Sessions from Republican senators. And it wound up being a really bad dynamic for Trump because both the Trump skeptical Republicans like John McCain and Lindsey Graham didn't want him to fire Sessions and replace him with a puppet who would shut down Bob Mueller's investigation. But also the Trump base, to the to the extent that I mean, not not rank and file, but to the extent that they were like thought leaders of of Trumpism, right? Guys like Tom Cotton in, in the Senate, um, immigration restrictionists, they know that Jeff Sessions is the real thing that Trump sort of pretends to be. Like, Sessions has toiled in the policy minds, advancing this kind of ethno-nationalistic politics for decades. He has the scars of, of battle to sort of prove it. Whereas Trump is like, who knows, right? I mean, he he supported all kinds of different things at, at different times. And so everybody wanted to keep Sessions in place. And then Trump just kind of backed down and he like stopped complaining about Sessions. He didn't fire Sessions. 
So then we got to this point where, like, the way it's supposed to work, right, is somebody says, well, we're going to sue you if you don't do this. And then you say, all right. And then if they sue you, you defend yourself in court. And, like, if you lose in court, you know, sure, you may need to revisit programs. But Texas did not file a lawsuit. Uh, This DACA program was implemented in 2012, right? So Texas did not find this to be unconstitutional in 2012. They didn't think it was unconstitutional in 2013. They didn't think it was unconstitutional in 2014. Didn't think it was unconstitutional in 2015. Didn't think it was unconstitutional in 2016. They spent six months of 2017 also not filing this lawsuit, right, is a totally trumped-up thing on the and point— And still have not declared in court they think it's unconstitutional. Right, and they still have not filed the lawsuit. There is a valid Office of Legal Counsel opinion sitting on their website that's like— I mean, it's from the Obama era, but it's, like, drawn up by the staff. It's like, this is the federal government's defense. You could put it to the test. Like, that's what you do. Trump could even have said, look— I don't necessarily agree with everything about the way Obama did this, but I am a strong believer in the executive branch's discretion over immigration. See a million legal briefs that we filed about the travel ban cases. Uh, So we are going to stand up for our rights to do this. We want Congress to blah, blah, blah. Uh, But at least according to what Maggie Haberman and and Glenn Thrush are reporting in the New York Times, Jeff Sessions just sort of said of his own accord that he wouldn't do that. He was not going to defend this program. And Trump, I think, having been humbled by Sessions in their earlier battle, now no longer had the stomach to impose his will on his own attorney general. So then he didn't go out and address this. He put Sessions out. Sessions articulated Jeff Sessions' policy, which is that DACA is unconstitutional and um, dreamers take jobs from native-born Americans. And then hours later, Donald Trump on Twitter put forward Donald Trump's policy, which is different. Donald Trump's policy is that DACA is not unconstitutional, and this is a discretionary matter that is in Donald Trump's hands, and that he is trying to get some kind of legislative leverage in Congress, and that he, I think, maybe wants a DACA for wall compromise bill. You know, as as you were saying, that Trump wants to play the CSRs game, but his attorney general, I mean, if it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional, right? Right. But— I mean, there's no—it hasn't been ruled to be unconstitutional. And then the Homeland Security Department is, like, running its own bureaucratic process where, like, they're filing letters to people. And there's a sort of critical question that nobody fully knows the answer to, which is, like, is ICE going to go take the DACA records and just show up at everybody's houses and start dragging people away? Or are they going to stick to their notional theory that they're primarily going after criminals and and stuff like that? There's a big question for the Defense Department, right? There are DACA recipients who are serving currently in the armed services, right? So if you're in that situation, right, if you are working aboard like an aircraft carrier, you have DACA, it's expiring in six months, are you supposed to go AWOL? right, and leave your post? Are you supposed to stay there until the day that you go off? Are they going to, on, like, day N plus one, are they going to throw you in the brig? Are you going to be deported? Like, they have no idea, right? They haven't put forward— Well, because we don't usually do immigration policy like this. This is not usually the way we do those sort of things. So it leaves all sort of unanswered questions about, you know, as you and Dara discussed, I think there's two kind of key pieces of context, is that a lot— The average age of a DACA recipient right now is 25, and they came to this country, you know, when they were, on on average, when they were six years old. So these are people who've 
really grown up in the United States, as you know, Dara smartly pointed out in the last episode, who often have not been back to where they were born because they can't leave the country because they don't have a passport and they're worried about getting back into the country. So these are people who, you know, are, are very much part of the United States who have grown up here and been, you know, part of that fabric is where they were raised. So I think that's one key piece of context. Another is that these people gave the government a lot of information. So it would be very, very easy for Jeff Sessions or DHS to track down DACA recipients. There's essentially this trust around the program that we're going to tell you where we are, who we are, and we're going to get this temporary relief. And there's a big unknown about how the executive is going to use this. I think also one of the things we're going to see over the next six months um, is a test of how Trump seems to think about making policy. He seems to have this idea that you create a crisis and then Congress will kind of come to the bargaining table because they have no other choice, that there's this big problem. There's, you know, in the case of Obamacare, that Obamacare is about to implode because we didn't pay the CSRs. Or in the case of DACA, that a really, you know, sympathetic group of immigrants are going to lose their ability to work and live in the United States. So you you force this crisis from the executive branch, and then Congress comes to the table because, you know, they need to fix this crisis. Um, it didn't really work in the Obamacare negotiations. There were some problems with the Affordable Care Act that since have been solved mostly with counties that had no insurance companies. And Trump really tried to hype those up, tried to say Obamacare is imploding, it's blowing up, we need to bring you to the table. Now we're actually getting a bit of a test of that with, you know, creating this, what I think a lot of Republicans and Democrats would agree is a problem. This is a group of immigrants that is generally pretty sympathetic and one that Republicans have advanced legislation to to allow them to stay and work in the country. And I don't see it as a great strategy for, for legislating, for getting things done. Um, it's not one that presidents typically use. You don't usually create a policy that creates a bad situation and then say, okay, that's going to be the catalyst for creating a better situation. But it, a lot of things about the Trump era are unprecedented. And one of the things I'm very curious to watch over the next six months is how Congress navigates this, whether, you know, they come and play ball at some level or, you know, you end up with something like the um, the fight over the sequester a few years ago where everyone had this big bad thing hanging at the end, the idea we would do a across-the-board budget cut at all departments. It was a terrible way to cut budgets. It was supposed to be the thing to stop Congress from not reaching a budget deal, but they didn't reach a budget deal, and the sequester went into effect. So Congress, I think we've seen, at least in recent years, isn't great at dealing with deadlines to avert crises. Sometimes the crisis just happens. We've got a really great offer this week from one of our very smart sponsors, The Economist magazine. I really love this magazine. I've been reading it for, it's got to be like 20 years now. It's a great, really in-depth look at the world, the issues that matter, with really great sort of clear writing and an important in-depth discussion of, of like fantastic range of issues. And they are offering Weeds fans a free copy of the magazine because they think if you get it in your hands, you're going to read it, you're going to love it, uh, you're going to become a subscriber. Um, you know, and if you're someone who, who likes this 
this podcast who likes to get into the weeds, uh, you're going to like The Economist's approach to coverage. They really let you dig deeper into what's happening in the world. It's not a it's not an ideological magazine. It's not viewpoint-driven, uh, but it's also not totally bland and mealy-mouthed. Uh, they give you the facts on a big range of topics, politics, technology, science, the environment, obviously economics. Uh, you know, we can only cover so many things here, so do yourself a favor. Visit www.economist.com slash weeds to sample a free copy of The Economist right now. Uh, they got the lowdown on the forces that, that shift our lives and impact our world, and they don't waste a single word. It's great, crisp, clear copy. Uh, they cut through the noise, help you stay well-informed, and, and it's, it's entertaining. So dig into The Economist today. Visit www.economist.com weeds, or just search Economist Weeds and get your free sample copy. I think I understand what Donald Trump is is thinking here, right? Which is that one of his business practices, very standard business practice, Donald Trump, if you read about him, is he hires some people to do some work at an agreed-upon price. Then when the work is complete, he doesn't pay. Then when you complain that he hasn't paid you, he raises some objection. He says, oh, you know, the pianos weren't right. It wasn't right. I'm not paying you. Then you keep saying, no, you have to pay me. And he just, he doesn't pay. And then at a certain point, you're like, wait, how am I going to get this guy to pay me? I, I'm going to have to sue him. And so you say, okay, Donald, like, I'm going to I'm gonna sue you. You have to pay me your money. And then Donald Trump says back to you, oh, what's interesting is that I have a team of lawyers on retainer all the time. They work for me one way or another. Uh, you're going to have to pay your guy by the hour. So we could have a lot of litigation over this. Or you could take a check for 65% of what I owe you. Uh most often, people take the check for 65%, it turns out. Um, and, and you know, I mean, you can read this. It's it's remarkable stuff that was not discussed in the campaign because we had to focus on emails. Uh, but this is standard sort of operating procedure is to not pay what he has agreed to pay and then use his sort of deep pockets to bully people into accepting less than what he owes. It's it's fascinating that this works, right? I mean, I could have told you, you know, drawn some economic model about reputation <laughs> and, you know, how you couldn't do this. But it turns out, no, that, like, capitalism rests on a foundation on some level of people not wanting to be assholes. Trump is just willing to be an asshole. It, it works really well for him. And he thinks that he can legislate this way. And he's—I just think he's wrong. That the presidency, it works for him— in business, because in business, he is usually the big fish, and so he has the leverage in the deal. And while it's true that the president has more power than any other actor in the American political system, it's a much more significant office than a Senate seat or a House seat, the president of the United States has a very little leverage, because when there's a disaster, it's the president's fault, fundamentally. Right. If ICE agents start dragging students off the Columbia University campus with fellow students and professors and stuff protesting, and there's like weird brawls there, and there's even just a slight slowdown in the national economy. Because, or off the aircraft carrier. Yeah, because skilled workers, like, that's bad for Donald Trump, right? People are not going to get mad at Luis Gutierrez for not having struck a deal in which he agrees to fund the border wall to get relief for DACA recipients if that happens. If this goes south, 
Like, people will blame Donald Trump. Uh, if health insurance premiums spike, people will blame Donald Trump. Uh, people, I mean, we've done papers on this, but, like, people will blame the president for things that aren't the president's fault, right? Like, if this hurricane— uh, Irma. If Irma turns out to be, like, worse than expected and, you know, uh, knocks power out in Florida for two months, like, people are going to blame Donald Trump for that, even though it's— probably not his fault. If bad things happen that are definitely are his fault because he was trying to engineer a crisis to get a border wall built, like, that is going to be his fault. And everybody knows it, right? I mean, and the shame of this is that if Trump were not so bad at being president— He probably could have obtained the policy objective that I think he's looking for here. I think what he would like is to— like, the the border wall has never made sense, right? It doesn't make sense as immigration policy. It doesn't really make sense as politics. But it's a symbol, right? It's both a symbol of his views on immigration. At this point, it's a symbol of, of his will versus Congress. And he would like to humble Congress by getting a few billion dollars as a down payment on a border wall. And if he had, like, months ago, quietly worked with strongly pro-immigration people on a deal in which they were going to pony up some border wall funding and in exchange there was going to be uh, real, firmly entrenched legal protections for DREAMers, I think everybody would have said, in good negotiating fashion, that they had achieved their core objectives here, right? That, like, who fucking cares about the border wall when there's hundreds of thousands of human beings' lives at stake? Versus Trump, like, Trump wants to deport lots of immigrants, but there's 11 million people you could potentially deport. You don't need to single out the 800,000 most sympathetic of them. But he's totally screwed it up, right? By turning it into this, like, power play where Trump's like, I'm going to shoot the puppies unless you give me a million dollars. Like, nobody, people don't negotiate like that, right? And it's not, politics is not the same as, like, dealing with a contractor in that regard, right? Like, you would look like the biggest shithead in the world as a Democrat if you gave in to this kind of extortion. And, like, nobody is going to do it, and nobody is asking them to do it, right? One thing you have not seen this week is, like, dreamer groups, yelling at Democrats that they need to start caving on unrelated policy issues to get Donald Trump to bail them out on this. Because just that's not how politics works. Like, it would be the, it would be so nutty. But that's what Trump would need to have happen, right? Like, dreamers would need to stop yelling at Donald Trump and start yelling at Nancy Pelosi. And there's just no way that's going to happen. Right. I think that is the, the key thing, that he— sees the locus of, like, he says, well, it's your job, Congress. And he tweets, you know, it's up to Congress to do that. But that is not how people are going to to think about this issue. They're going to look at the person who ended this program and, you know, will somewhat reasonably say, you know, you are the reason this problem is happening. We have polling data that, you know, shows over time that I've mostly looked at the Affordable Care Act polling, but I'm guessing this is somewhat generalizable that increasingly the public and increasingly Republicans say that, you know, the future of Obama policy programs, if it goes wrong, they place the blame on Trump. They don't place it on the Democrats who put it into effect a few years ago. They don't blame it on the Democrats who are sitting in office now. People, you know, somewhat reasonably say when you're in the executive, it is your fault when things don't work. And I think that's a kind of fair way to assign blame. One of the other things I feel like we're seeing— being tested right now that's going to play out for a lot longer is the 
bounds of executive authority and how much you can do by executive, which I think is very alluring in an era of partisanship where it's harder to get things done. With Congress, it can be, and we I think it is certainly true that Obama really tested some of the boundaries of executive action, that he became frustrated with Congress. He figured, you know, it is better to try to do this on my own and kind of saw situations where he felt like, better do this now and face a lawsuit later than not act at all. That seems like it will only become more common as we have more partisanship and it becomes harder and harder to move anything through Congress. You know, we've seen even in unified government with the kind of far right wing of the Republican Party, it's been impossible to pass any major legislation in 2017. We've had nearly a full year of Republicans controlling Congress with very little legislative accomplishment to to show for it. But we have seen, you know, Trump also testing the boundaries of executive authority with his rules on immigration at the start of his term. And I think you'll see a lot more policy flip-flopping as we go forward, as things that are done by executive are much harder to keep around. The, the, the allure is that you can make them much easier, but the downside is you can undo them much easier. And I think that is what we are seeing now in the transition between Obama and Trump and one that's about to become more common. And really not just in immigration, in all sorts of policy areas, in environmental regulations, in um, the birth control rule, for example, the requirement that all companies cover contraceptives. It seems like that's very likely to be rolled back by the Trump administration soon. And I think that is a new dynamic that makes it a lot harder to legislate for the long term, to have stable policies that industries can work around, that people can plan their lives around. I don't fully know how you solve that in an era of partisanship, but it seems like something that's likely to become more more frequent going forward. It's 2017, and these days you can get practically anything you want on demand. You know, our podcast, you listen to it when you want, when it's convenient to you. And that's how everything works these days. It's the app world. It's an on-demand world. Uh, but, you know, if you need to mail something, you got to go to the post office. you got to deal with their limited hours. Uh, they're sort of like weird holiday schedules. They're often not open when you need to go. Uh, but if you use stamps.com, you can get postage on demand. So anything you could do with the post office, you can do right now from your desk with stamps.com. That means in particular, you're buying and printing official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. You don't need, like, weirdo special equipment. Uh, You have a computer, you have a printer, uh, you have a web browser. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes. So you can get what you need whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's just like... This is the most convenient way to do things. It means that when it occurs to you, you need the postage, you need to do a big mailing, you go log on, you get what you need, you don't have to go out of your way, you don't need to like look up, oh, where can I go, when's it open, whatever, you just do it from your desk. And if you use our promo code WEEDS, you get a special offer. It's a four-week trial, it includes postage and a digital scale so that, you know, you know how much postage you need. Uh, So don't wait, go to stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage, type in WEEDS, that's stamps.com, enter WEEDS. So with Stamps.com, get all the postage you want, and never go to the post office again. One thing that you're seeing in the sort of congressional reaction to this DACA move is that a fair number of Republican members of Congress seem to actually secretly support DACA. And in an interesting way, though, they didn't support it when Obama was—in particular, they didn't support the DREAM Act. 
right? I mean, some Republicans just oppose this whole idea. They applaud what Trump is doing, like Jeff Sessions wants something to do. But there's a critical mass of Republicans, including, I would say, critically, Paul Ryan, who seemed to be telling Trump not to roll back DACA, who did not, like, encourage a lawsuit against Obama to actually get rid of DACA, but who also did not support the DREAM Act and did not do anything during his years in the majority to create a legislative version of this. And, you know, the strategic thinking of Republicans when Obama was president was very clearly to try to deny him legislative achievements, right? Even if that meant having him do things through executive action that Republicans felt were bad policy outcomes. Like, they knew—I mean, you really saw this on climate change, right? Like, everybody knew that the end game of the uh, cap-and-trade debate was that if Republicans blocked Obama from doing anything, he was going to have the EPA take action, and it was going to be, in some ways, much more costly and much harsher on industry. But that's what Republicans wanted. Republicans wanted Obama to need to be doing irregular stuff through the executive branch that was very painful to industry, that would sort of maximize opposition to Obama. They didn't want to strike deals and strike compromises. Once Trump actually takes office, you suddenly see some people who are like, well, no, let's not, let's not get rid of DACA, right? And it's at least conceivable that when the wheel of history turns again, you know, and we don't know what the new configuration will be, that people will look at this a little bit differently and say, you know, maybe when Max Baucus was desperate to get some votes from Olympia Snow and Susan Collins, like, maybe we should have struck a deal on healthcare rather than finding once it's in place that we can't actually repeal it, right? Maybe when Democrats were proposing the DREAM Act, maybe we should have come to the table and said, you know what, we don't want a path to citizenship for these people that's going to let them sponsor new immigrants, but we will create a program that gives them permanent work permits and ability to live here. And, like, maybe they themselves would have been better off because they succeeded in sort of frustrating Democrats at, at a lot of turns. But it's not, you know, if you— the further you step back, it, it depends on the window. But this sort of obstruction of Obama, I think, looked really, really smart in January 2017. But from where we are in the fall, I think it looks like not so smart, right? Republicans are having difficulty just like rolling back the whole Obama administration. And if they had been able to temper the Obama administration at the time by doing deals with him, they might be in a stronger position today, you know, to, like, move forward and, and keep shifting the needle on things. You know, and I think the fact that we're, like, we're still talking about how they're going to oversee the Affordable Care Act is just, like, a striking example of that, right? Like, they, the, the Democrats were desperate. I mean, they were desperate when they were in the majority to get some Republicans to vote for something, but Republicans didn't want to, like, seriously engage. Then once Republicans took the majority, Democrats were Still, the Obama administration would have been really glad to, like, work with them on some tweaks at that time if there was, like, a couple specific asks that Republicans had in exchange for, for a little this or that. But they didn't want to do that. They were like, nope, we're going to repeal, we're going to repeal, we're going to repeal, we're going to repeal. Then they take over. It turns out, uh, repealing this whole thing is really hard. 
And so now they got to run it, but like they don't want to. Well, that's a good transition to our next segment. Yes. Um, which I've been calling in my head Obamacare sabotage and stabilization. A very exciting headline for this section. Sabotage and stabilization. Um, so we have two twin things happening right now in the executive and in Congress. We have the Trump administration pretty clearly, from my view, doing things that will make the Affordable Care Act work less well, that will make it harder for people to sign up, that will likely lead to fewer people having coverage through healthcare.gov and through the Medicaid program. Last week, the Trump administration announced that they are going to cut Obamacare's advertising budget 90% and cut the in-person outreach budget 41%, which, particularly with the advertising, that was a cut from the $100 million the Obama administration spent last year to just $10 million this year. They've said there will be no more television advertisements, no more radio. They're really going to focus on digital outreach to people who are already enrolled, sending them reminders that they need to sign up again. But they do not seem to have set their sights on signing up any new enrollees. They framed this as we're trying to be responsible with taxpayer dollars, that people already know about the Affordable Care Act, we don't need to do this outreach, and that the in-person enrollment groups have been very ineffective. One of the things the Obama administration had these enrollment groups do was um, was set enrollment goals. And from the you know enrollment folks I've talked to, they said they were always encouraged by the Obama administration to aim high, to set a high goal, see if they could meet it. These Goals were never really used for much of anything. They were something these enrollment groups put in their application were encouraged to set high, but it was never really a metric that was used to determine funding, to, you know, rank the groups in any way. The Trump administration came into office and decided this is the metric they're going to use to determine grants. We're not sure still if they're talking about this year enrollment, last year enrollment. That's not really been made clear. But if you got to 30% of your enrollment goal, you're going to get 30% of your funding. This was a huge surprise to enrollment groups, which had been told by the people they talked to at the federal government that their grants would be the same. Um, there's even Charles Gabba, an independent blogger, has even come across some documents suggesting as recently as last week uh, they had they were ready to go with the original size grants. They weren't planning this big cut, and something changed very quickly. And now we have this massive cut to funding. The Trump administration has framed these groups as quite ineffective, that they aren't good at signing up people. They only enrolled 81,000 people in coverage in, I think that's from 2016, out of the 12 million who actually have coverage. But that really seems to take a quite narrow view of what these groups are doing. You know, I talked to one group in South Carolina, which has enrolled, I think, about 1,200 people, but also fields 24,000 inquiries from South Carolinans each year about the Affordable Care Act, saying, hey, how do I do this? How do I do that? Those don't count as enrollments, but they arguably are part of what they're doing. Um, So you have this effort on one end to sabotage the Affordable Care Act. You also have, you know, 16 blocks down Pennsylvania Avenue. Right now, while we're recording the weeds, the Senate Health Committee is starting on stabilization hearings where they are trying to see if they can pass some kind of package that will likely be quite small to stabilize the Affordable Care Act next year. A lot of think tanks, um, healthcare wonks have put out these, like, 10, 15-point plans about here's what Congress should do. They're really complex. Those are not going to be what comes out of this. We're essentially expecting, if anything comes out of it, and and it seems plausible it it might, it will essentially be guaranteeing funding for those cost-sharing reduction subsidies, something Democrats want, and a little bit more flexibility on Obamacare waivers, something Republicans want. It's going to be a very clear trade of these two items that are two of— you know, I think about a dozen items in the plan that governors John Kasich and John Hickenloper released last week. 
So you have two counter things happening right now, um, which is a little bit weird having, you know, Republican control of the government with Congress, I think, making a very genuine effort to make Obamacare work a little bit better next year and the White House making a genuine effort to make Obamacare work less well next year. And again, I mean, it's it's worth, I think, underscoring just like how bad at being president Donald Trump is and how poorly he is being served by his aides. You know, he has up there this mishmash of like nincompoops, like his son-in-law who doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, guys like John Kelly, who I think John Kelly knows like a lot probably about running a Marine division and not that much about domestic social policy, but that's like the island of competence. And then he has these ideological maniacs, right? That like Trump, in some perverse logic, Trump was opposed by the Republican establishment and also Freedom Caucus maniacs were opposed by the Republican establishment. So he has these guys like Mick Mulvaney, um, and Tom Price, just like scattered throughout his administration, guys who have no loyalty to Donald Trump, whose worldview has nothing in common with the positions Trump outlined as a candidate, um, and who who hate any kind of government program, who were willing to risk default of the national debt back in 2012 to pursue their like fantasy of destroying the welfare state, and who are subverting Trump's own governance in their efforts to sort of destroy these programs. There was this wild Politico story about Mick Mulvaney in which, for the lead of the story, Mick Mulvaney describes on the record to Michael Grunwald how he tricked Donald Trump into proposing Social Security cuts that Donald Trump had promised not to propose. And Mulvaney is being, he's being very open that, like, if Trump had understood, for example, the name of the program— that Trump would not have agreed to propose this, but Mulvaney duped him, and then he brags about how he duped him. And so now they're in this situation where, I mean, say this works, right? Say they sabotage the outreach so people don't sign up, and in particular, healthier people don't sign up. So the risk pools get worse, premiums skyrocket, federal spending on subsidies needs to go up. Like, who does that help? Like, why is it good for Donald Trump if next year we're like, healthcare is going to shit? And then Trump's going to be like, well, see, that shows Obamacare is bad. And then we're saying, like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you already, like, you had a bill. It didn't pass. Like, you've been bragging for months about this implosion plan. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And so much of the government is premised on the idea that the president will not deliberately engineer bad outcomes, right? Like, you could say, you could have the Air Force be like, just start shelling Chicago tomorrow. And we're saying, like, we're going to keep blowing buildings up until they agree to our tax cuts. But like, no, right? Like, you, you wouldn't do that. And this is, I mean, it's not quite as deadly, but it's it's similar. It's like, why would you do this? Like, it's just totally baffling. Nobody else would ever do it. Like, you have never seen a Republican. George W. Bush, when he was trying to privatize Social Security, wasn't like, well, maybe we'll have everyone lose the checks in the mail and that'll show them, right? Like, he could have tried, but it's dumb. Everybody would have been really mad. He'd be like, George W. Bush isn't mailing the fucking checks. Like, just sign people up for the program. It made a little bit more sense to me when we were in the middle of the Obamacare debate that, and you saw this, I think you saw this happening from congressional leaders too, who we're constantly, you know, you you need a reason to repeal Obamacare. And the reason was Obamacare works terribly. So you'd see 
legislators, you know, I saw Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, they would constantly talk about these counties where nobody wanted to sell health insurance. And even while regulators in their states were working very hard to fix that problem, that problem served a political purpose. It made the case for Obamacare repeal. We just found out from the Senate parliamentarian last week that the bill to, the vehicle they want to use to repeal the Affordable Care Act essentially expires on September 30th. We have, today is, what, September 6th? There's, you know, maybe 10 or so legislative days. Obamacare repeal, you know, is very dead for this year. It is not coming back, which makes this a very puzzling strategy. I could sort of see it, even if it didn't quite make sense to me, in the Obamacare fight to do things to make Obamacare work less good, to make the case for a replacement plan. But now you're not even making the case for a replacement plan. Like, there is no feasible backup if this, like, implosion effort is successful. And the people that get hurt are, you know, a very vulnerable population. The people who use in-person enrollment, there's a good survey by the Commonwealth Fund that finds three in 10 of them don't have internet at home. They go for in-person enrollment because, you know, they aren't quite sure how to sign up. A lot of the enrollment is online. Um, One in 10 don't speak English. They, you know, go to, you know, I spent some time a few months ago with a Obamacare enrollment group in Detroit that focuses on the Arab American population there, particularly Arab American refugees, a lot of whom, you know, don't have strong English skills. I don't think there's an Arab version of healthcare.gov. There is a Spanish one. So they go seek in-person assistance for someone who can actually translate for them. The people who stand to be hurt by this, you know, I think more educated, more affluent Obamacare enrollees are going to remember to sign up. They're going to know there's an enrollment period. They are going to take the steps they need. And if an enrollment counselor can't see them, they're probably going to figure it out on their own. You know, the Arab-American refugees I wrote about in Detroit, if they don't get a call from their person saying, hey, it's open enrollment season, or even if they do know it's open enrollment season, but they can't quite navigate the website— Those are the people who are really at risk in a change like this. And one of the things that stood out to me from this announcement, the um, HHS, they did a call with a bunch of reporters to make this announcement, and they explained this new methodology that, you know, if you enroll 30% of your target, you get 30% of your grant. Um, You know, the question I asked them on that call was, well, what if you got to 110%? Like, what if you're super good at signing people up for Obamacare? Do you get 110% of the grant you were supposed to? And the response I got was, that's not how the methodology works. Um, you know, this is a this is not just a rejiggering of the formula. They, they are quite clear it's a $23 million cut to in-person assistance, which made this seem like if you're trying to, like, make a more effective in-person outreach program, great. Like, put this money somewhere else. Give it to people who you think are going to be better at signing people up. It's just a cut. It's not an attempt to make this more effective. It's just an attempt to do less outreach. And now that repeal has failed, I think— you know, the ideologues, I think, like, Tom Price and McMulvaney and these other guys, they should think a little bit about what's their long-term strategy here, right? I mean, you can imagine one world in which the Affordable Care Act is modified in some ways by conservatives, right? In which there's a little bit more uh, waiver flexibility. They are getting rid of this birth control mandate and some other things that they don't like. You know, tinkering around the edges, but the sort of core of the program remains in place. And it's— uh, Let's say it's working, right? I mean, let's say that the uninsurance rate, you know, it keeps drifting downwards, right, as the undocumented share of the population declines and as more people sign up and this gets more entrenched. Then at some future time, you know, Democrats are going to win an election and 
someone's going to be like, we should have Medicare for all. And then they're going to be able to lobby, you know, more vulnerable, more centrist Democrats and be like, hey, don't do a huge tax increase. And they'll probably win. It's like it's hard to pass big, big laws in America if things are okay. Now, on the other hand, if they go down this road where they, like, completely sabotage the Affordable Care Act and make a wreck of it, premiums are super high, nobody signs up, but, like, there's this big Medicaid expansion and everyone's still on Medicare, then I think you've made it clear where things stand, right? That Republicans have made it clear that they do not have a politically viable solution to the health insurance problem. So there's now, like, two solutions on the table. One is the moderate Democrat vision of the Affordable Care Act, and the other is the liberal Democrat vision of a single-payer system. And, like, Republicans can either try to park it in the moderate solution, or we're going to drift to the left wing solution. This idea that, like, you're going to wreck this sort of, at this point, small part of the American healthcare system, you're going to destroy it, and then what's going to happen next is everyone's going to be like, well, maybe no one should have health insurance, right? Like, that that doesn't make any sense. Like, it's not even the agenda that they're pushing. And there's just a kind of I don't know what, like driven by spite or bitterness or something. Like they don't, they don't like it. It feels like a bummer to them that they're put in charge of this thing and, and they don't want to deal with it. But like everyone's got to grow up a little bit here and like do their job. But Congress seems to get this at this point. So I yes. think one of the things I have actually been surprised about is how quickly congressional Republicans have generally move towards the idea of stabilization, that the hearings that'll be happening this week and next week in the Senate Help Committee really do, from the conversations I've had with the Hill staff, seem like a good faith effort to pass a very small Obamacare stabilization bill for the next year. I think there is an acknowledgement that there's a lot of bad blood between the two sides. They cannot get a lot done this year. But everything I can tell is that the Republicans in the Senate, they are they kind of see the writing on the wall that Matt talks about. They don't see the advantage to running a shitty healthcare program. They kind of get the fact repeal didn't happen that they are going to move on to fixing this, which, it, like I said, it surprised me how quickly that pivot was made. But even yesterday, we saw early reports of the Freedom Caucus getting behind some kind of stabilization plan that we haven't actually seen, so who knows what the deal is. Tom MacArthur, <laughs> he always strikes a hard bargain. He, always, he also, there's an amazing report in The Hill where he says, well, you know, the the, <laughs> the elements of this plan are, you know, we're going to fund the cost-sharing reduction subsidies, we're going to give some more flexibility on waivers, and we're going to lower, there's some, quote, something to lower drug costs. I, I'm very excited to see what the something is. This is for those who are not you know, healthcare junkies. Tom MacArthur was, he was supposed to be the leader of the moderate Republicans in the House. But he made their bill way more conservative. And then he struck this deal with the Freedom Caucus. When it seemed dead, he went over to the Freedom Caucus, the head of the moderate group, and just like made huge concessions to the Freedom Caucus for no reason. Then the moderates got on board. And then the moderates (laughs) all got on board the bill. So he's like, America's worst legislator. Or but he something. got shit done. I mean, <laughs> yes, he, he got, got something. <laughs> so it seems like the White House and Congress, in a lot of ways, are working at cross purposes right now. And I am, you know, we have this deadline coming up on September 27th when insurance companies have to decide are we in or out on the Obamacare marketplaces. My sense is you'll be told that deadline is not flexible at all, that it's a hard deadline. If Congress is getting very close to passing something, if it's just a few more procedural steps, they'll probably push that deadline back by a few days. And it seems possible to me something might move through Congress. And I think that would really 
transition us to a new era of Obamacare legislating, where there actually are things done to stabilize the law, which would be quite a shift from the past seven or years, seven or so years we've had of just a fight about, you know, repeal. So great ideas can change our culture, even the whole world. But have you ever wondered, you know, where do these great ideas come from? What was it like to be present at their creation? And now you don't need to imagine. There's a brand new podcast series titled Origins. It's written and hosted by James Andrew Miller, an award-winning author of oral history books on Saturday Night Live, ESPN, and CIA. Uh, And with him, you're going to get to explore the beginnings in the world of film, television, music, sports, and and more. You're going to hear stories firsthand from the people who were there on day one and those who arrived in time to play key roles in turning these great ideas into legendary successes. In Chapter 1 of Origins, Jim's going to take you on a five-episode journey deep into the origins of the award-winning HBO comedy series Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is coming back to TV uh, October 1st for ninth season. I'm really excited about that. Uh, He's going to be joined by Larry David, Cheryl Hines, Susie Essman, J.B. Smoove, Ted Danson, Richard Lewis, Bob Einstein, and many other members of the Curb congregation, all of whom's going to share accounts of their life behind the cameras, Curb's early days, how it changed over time, and became, you know, not just a, a great show, but really like a watershed moment and comedy. When you subscribe to Origins, you're also going to get to hear all the individual interviews that were conducted as well. And on the first Wednesday of every month, there's going to be a new chapter of Origins with an entirely new topic, interviews with other visionaries and stars. Uh, so Origins is available now to subscribe and binge with a five-episode Origins story of Curb Your Enthusiasm and a fall season of additional chapters to follow on Apple Podcasts and wherever you listen. Enough of this dramatic, of this. sexy, headline-grabbing clickbait. It's time to, it's it's time time to get to, serious. What are we talking about? We're talking about all-payer rate settings. Yes. So, so what's the name of our white paper? Do you have it up? This is Uncompensated Care and the Collapse of Hospital Payment Regulation, colon, an illustration of the Tinbergen Rule. It is by uh, Jeffrey Clemens and Benedict Ippolito, and it is a— um, it's a hell of a paper. Um, so this, uh, I'll pay a rate setting for those who, for some reason, have not been paying attention to, to the weeds. This is a regulatory concept that uh, exists in several foreign countries and has had its moments in American states, but it, but is not broadly used. And the idea basically is that instead of having a single payer system in which the government says, well, because we are paying all the hospital bills, this is what a hospital can charge. You just do the regulatory part of that. And you say, this is what a hospital can charge. And then you still have the multiple different financing streams. Uh, People could be on public programs or could have, uh, you know, large group, small group, all the different kinds of health insurance. But you just do it on a regulatory sense. You say, look, this is a... um, Critical human service, not a standard commodity. It's heavily subsidized because it's such a critical human service. And because it's both critical and heavily subsidized, it also needs to have price regulation. I think of it as very similar to regulating health prices like a utility, saying it's something everyone needs, like we're going to step in and say this is what is appropriate to charge. Right. And a lot of people have this hazy sense that like the only two kinds of healthcare systems in the world are like the American system and the Canadian system. Uh, but in fact, something along the lines of a multi-payer system with heavy price controls is very common internationally. Right. This like is, that's the German system. I think the Swiss system works that way as well. The Singaporean it's, system, yeah. net the Dutch healthcare system. It's, a lot of things we think of like vaguely as single payer or universal coverage are also or actually just all payer rate setting. Yeah. I mean, it, they have other things going on, but I mean, heavy price regulation, including things free markety people and left wing people all like to cite. Um, so 
An interesting historical question is, why has this not worked in the United States? Um, well, can we just put a little bit of the history in here? So yeah. th- this this idea really took hold in like the 1980s, basically all up and down the East Coast. States like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, Maryland, they all adopt these all-payer rate-setting schemes because, you know, they think, oh, this is going to be a good way to contain healthcare costs. Um, and... By the mid-90s, one by one, they start abandoning these schemes. Um, The only one left is Maryland still operates an all-payer rate-setting system, but all the other ones. And John McDonough has written a really nice history of this in Health Affairs that for anyone who's a nerd, I recommend it. We'll put it in show notes. Um, But they all start quitting. And there's this question of why. Why did this thing that a lot of other countries use to control healthcare costs, why did it not work when these states did it. And um, this paper has a theory about that. Yes. Uh, so so the account that they give here is, I would say, that it, it's sort of twofold. Uh, but, but one thing is that the states that did this tended to be, uh, I mean, they, they were northeastern states. They were more liberal states. And so they wanted to not just control costs, but control costs while finding a way to increase coverage. So part of how the rate setting was worked was that it was supposed to incorporate uncompensated care for the indigent, right? It was going to be like essentially financed through the all-payer mechanism. And then the second thing is that they often exempted HMOs from participation in the all-payer scheme. So you're you're doing utility-style regulation, right? If you think about how you regulate electrical utility prices, uh, you're supposed to let the utility uh, charge people enough for electricity to cover both, like, the cost of buying the power from a power plant, but also the cost of, you know, doing maintenance on the power grid and doing sort of upgrades and and capital improvements, right? So you you need to build in a, a certain amount of extra price. The way they were setting rates for hospitals was that you were paying enough to cover the cost of operating the hospital, but also enough to cover the cost of providing essentially free medical care to the poor. Yeah. And these SAR charges, they were significant. Like they range, they report in this paper, they range from 6 to 12%. So this is like, you're going above and beyond the price of a MRI to help provide some like free MRIs to people who don't have health insurance. It'd be like in the electricity scheme, you're also trying to finance free electricity for low-income families that can't afford their bills. Right, exactly. And, and so this is important because what happens is, in effect, like Vox Media's insurance plan is paying the cost of Vox Media's employees plus some other people, right? And so the problem here is that it basically creates a little bit of a death spiral environment, right? You were basically taxing people for having health insurance, right? To defray the cost of people who don't have health insurance, which encourages at the margin you to not have health insurance. Or to switch to an HMO, which is exempted. Right. And in particular, when you create the HMO option, not having health insurance is like pretty drastic. Like, oh, I don't know about that. But HMO, you know, you might not like an HMO as much, but it's a viable option, right? So in effect, instead of creating a rate regulation system, you are creating an incentive for everyone to convert to HMOs. And I would say it was successful at that. This was also the time when a lot of plans were being converted to HMO plans. Uh, But that meant you were escaping the all-payer system and you were also escaping, like, the uncompensated care, right? So you you were neither getting the cost control that you wanted from all-payer rate setting and you also weren't getting the revenue 
to to pay for the uncompensated care that you wanted. You were just getting these HMOs, which I guess they thought was okay because HMOs were also supposed to be an alternate path to controlling costs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's why they were exempted, was that HMOs were doing more of these kind of bundled payments. It was kind of hard to regulate the sim. And, you know, they might be paying for a whole episode of care or paying, like, a certain per-person amount to the hospitals, whereas it's a lot easier to regulate the price of someone who's paying a fee for each service. And they were also small. You know, when these were being created, these all-payer rate-setting systems, they report that less than 5% of the market in the early 80s was HMOs. They seem like this small, weird thing. And, you know, one of the things they write in here, that it doesn't seem like these all-payer rate-setting schemes um, caused a decline in employer-sponsored coverage. But you, you did see, at the same time, insurance uninsured rates going up as coverage became more expensive. That wasn't caused by these schemes, but it really seemed to hurt these plans a lot. Because when you have fewer people with coverage, you need a bigger surcharge to cover that. And, you know, that exacerbates the problem that's driving the decline of coverage. So it leads them to this policy rule that I had never heard of, but I think is a very Good one. Yeah, so so they call this the Tinbergen rule, which um, is not a phrase that I'd heard before, but but yeah. I, I I like this idea. I really I think, like I it. I think it's a good idea, and and the idea is that your policy should try to solve one problem, right? And so like if you had looked at all payer rate setting as purely a cost control issue, then you could have said, and we're going to exempt HMOs because they control costs because, in a different because way. that's a different cost control approach, or if you had said okay, we want to tax everybody with, like, an insurance surcharge and pay for indigent care, you could have done that. But that to try to do them both simultaneously, to create a cost control system that was also a tax and transfer system, turned the HMO exemption into this, like, deadly loophole because they were trying to do two things at once. And I think legislators are often, like, attracted to two birds, one stone legislating because it's really easy to sell to say, look, this program is going to reduce costs. It's going to cover the uninsured. It's going to create this—it's going to allow for experiments in health insurance. Look at all you're getting in this cool new healthcare system we created. In effect, it becomes very difficult to run programs that are able to actually accomplish all those objectives. And you see—I think this is a really—I was really interested in this paper because it's a really nice— example in the real world of how when you have these competing objectives of, well, we need it to cover the uninsured, but we also need we need the prices for everybody who has insurance to be the same, you start seeing a lot of tension between those two goals. And I thought it was a very nice reminder of a paper that often these things that that sound good, that sell well in politics, can, ha- can be very difficult to implement in the real world. And it's not always better to have a lot of policy objectives. It's often better to have a clear policy with a one clear goal in mind instead of all these different things it's trying to do. Yeah, and, you know, and to distinguish a little, I mean, one thing that I think they're not saying is that, you know, a legislative bundle can't try to accomplish more than one goals. I mean, sometimes in Congress, it's just you squeeze a lot of different provisions into a given bill, like the Affordable Care Act also changed how student loans work, uh, which is weird, but they had their reasons for that. But, but I think the point is that you should try to solve one problem at a time, right? And that, like, fundamentally, the problem of providing for health care for the uninsured is, like, you need some money. Right. You need like a basket of money. And like the way to get money is with taxes. 
And then there's like also a question of why the price of healthcare in the United States is so high. And that is like a question that is worth addressing. But that like these are, and of course, everything is linked in the policy universe. If healthcare prices were cheaper, somewhat more people could have insurance. But still, it's just, it's fundamentally the case that like, the market does not provide robust health insurance to every single person. And also, healthcare prices are very, very high in the United States. And like, these are just like, separate kinds of questions that whether it's states or federal governments, like they need to look at them separately. Yeah. So this kind of changed how I thought about all the history of all-payer rate setting in the United States, where I had initially had this idea that hospitals just kind of chafed at the idea of having these regulated prices, that they felt too constrained, that, you know, there was this kind of anti-regulatory push that went from one state to another to get rid of these schemes in the 1990s. This actually makes me a little more optimistic about all-payer rate-setting systems if they are just trying to do one thing. And you do have the kind of successful example of Maryland as the one that has survived all these years, that it it, it seems like there isn't—I would be curious if there are state legislators out there listening to us who want to do a cool, interesting experiment or state bureaucrats to see a all-payer rate-setting scheme that really is aimed at just cost control, that says, you know, we have the Affordable Care Act in the background that's helping cover people without insurance. This would probably be a state that expanded Medicaid— we just want to focus on all-payer rate setting as a way to control costs. I think that's an experiment we actually haven't seen a lot of, and it's distinct from the experiments we saw in the 1990s. And I'd be quite curious how one of those would play out in a state healthcare system now that we have this environment where a lot more people have health insurance and you don't need to do as much of that work in in a system like this one. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes it seem like, you know, blue states, Medicaid expansion states— whose uninsurance rates are now fairly low, should really, really, really take a hard look at, you know, another run at this. Um, Particularly if you are feeling, you know, political pressure to try to come up with state-level single-payer systems, which the just, like, actual dynamics of making that work and getting all the federal waivers and stuff look a little bit questionable. Um, You could take a lot of the cost control elements of that and and put them into place. And, you know, both large and small states have some pros and cons of going at this. But the fact that Maryland, which is a a medium-ish state, I mean, a a fairly dense state, but, you know, not not the smallest, not the biggest, uh, is making this work, you know, really seems to suggest that, you know, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, I mean, particularly the the Northeastern states that tried this before uh, should definitely take another run at it. I mean, states that have enormous internal geographical variation may have some kind of technical issues that you need to think through here, right? That, like, Illinois is going to have, like, a large share of its hospitals are in the giant city of Chicago, but a decent share of them are going to be in, you know, very sort of sparsely populated downstate areas, and and you gotta you gotta think about how that's supposed to work. But I think Delaware, I think Delaware is where where this should happen. Delaware, Small state, Connecticut, Connecticut. I think a Rhode Island. I think those are like the prime target here. Yeah, go for it. Um, but really, it's like you know, this was an approach that was it seems like was abandoned for mostly bad reasons, um, and in part through a lack of creative thinking about how to try to make it work, you know, um, and and what even the sort of objectives really were, uh, this 
it continues to be the case. It's not discussed in America, but like it's true that several countries have single payer systems that work fine. Uh, but this is definitely a model that is out there, alive and working. Um, you make healthcare cheaper by saying, by law, you have to make it cheaper. <laughs> As with any price control system, um, if you go too far, you of course run the risk of shortages. You know, hospitals might close, people might flee. So you need to work it out. But there's been enormous consolidation in the hospital industry, you know, incredible amounts of of mergers and, and things like that. There's enormous variation in what is charged by different hospitals from place to place. Uh, there's a lot of rationalization that you could potentially bring to the system. And it's not a magical fix for the uninsurance problem, but there's now a lot of federal money available to try to fix the uninsurance problem. If you could just make healthcare cheaper for like regular people and businesses in your state, that would be really nice. And then separately, if everyone was saving a ton of money, you could have a different tax and free up some more subsidies if you wanted. All right. Delaware, it's balls in your court now. <laughs> Do it. Yes. I am excited to see Weeds listeners in New York this weekend at our live episode. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, we are going to be in New York City uh, this weekend, uh, me and Sarah with, with Darlind at the Now Hear This uh, Festival. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. We're going to get in brawl with Planet Money. Are They've we? already been feuding with me on Twitter. Yeah, they are. They're, they're talking tough on Twitter, but we'll see how tough they are in real life. Because these are sort of one-trick audio ponies here. And, you know, we we podcast a little, but, but we're also writers. A, a little bit of a, <laughs> frankly, a tougher breed, I think, uh, wow. than these, these radio hooligans. has been has been thrown. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you see a black eye on stage, you'll know what happened. You're going to know. And uh, Ezra is going to be back with us next week, uh, so that will be nice. Uh, he's going to be tanned, rested ready. Um, Looking forward to it. Uh, Thanks to our producer, Jillian Weinberger, engineer, Peter Leonard, and we will see you soon. Bye.